Hello and welcome to the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. My name is Jack, and today I've got a little bonus episode for you. Uh, I want to continue to look at the topic of contentment. Uh, back in 2023, we did an episode in the middle of season two on the topic of contentment or that common Christian struggle of uh, of contentment. And, you know, it, it was well received. It was one of our more popular episodes. And recently I, you know, sent a message out to some of our listeners like, hey, what topic would you like? more information on and the issue of contentment continued to come up seems it's a, it's a thing that many of us struggle with so the purpose of this episode is just to kind of double down on contentment and contend for christian contentment if you will um so i'll, I'll jump into this here in a moment but before i do let me just kind of read the the core verse that i have in mind as i as i put this together thinking about contentment uh, it comes from philippians 4 10 through 13. Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, 2007, uh, when I started thinking about this, there's, there was this event in 2007 that just stuck, sticks out in my mind. Uh, 2007 was a pretty big year. Um, it was the year I met my beautiful wife. It was the year I graduated college. Um, you know, it was the year, I think it was the year the first iPhone came out. So a lot of things happened in 2007. But as it relates to Christian contentment, the thing that sticks out in my mind is the 2007 NBA slam dunk contest that was won by Dwight Howard. And you're probably wondering what a slam dunk contest has to do with Christian contentment. It's a very fair question. Um, you know, most, most dunk contests are incredibly forgettable. I don't even watch them. Like they're, they're a silly event, even if you're a basketball fan. Like I, str I struggle to see how people can be engaged in these things. But for whatever reason, I remember this one. And I remember it because when Dwight Howard went to dunk the basketball in this contest, he dunks with his right hand and with his left hand, he goes up really high and he slaps a sticker on the back of the backboard. And after the applause died down, the camera zooms into the sticker and what you see on the sticker is a picture of Dwight Howard's smiling face and the words written look like like in a marker. I can do all things through Christ, Philippians 4.13. And when I saw this, my initial reaction was honestly to chuckle a little bit. I mean, it was just kind of an amusing display because in one, in a very grand fashion, you have this guy saying he's doing all things in Christ. Like, so essentially he's dunking or this ability to dunk is in Christ when he's a seven foot tall freak superstar athlete, he spent his entire life training to be able to do that thing. Now I'm not saying Christ didn't enable him to do that. Uh, I'm just saying his faith, it wasn't a faith generated thing, right? And, and, and we see this verse mis misused like this a lot where um, you see it in coffee cups, you see it on in, in t-shirts, I can do all things through Christ. And it tends to be this, this uh, inspirational, motivational uh, phrase. Right. It's, it's, it's this overachievement. It's the sense that I can do conquer this thing. I can climb this mountain. I can run faster. I can do all these things if Christ, through Christ who strengthens me. But what's interesting is the, the context of this verse, Paul isn't speaking of Christ as some inspirational overachievement. Like he's not, he's not leveraged. He's not saying you can use Christ to climb new mountains or conquer or whatever. Rather, Paul is reminding us in Philippians 4. Then in the hardest of times, Christ sustains us and he strengthens us. I mean, he's coming from the complete opposite end of the spectrum, suffering and contentment. He's reminding us that in Christ, we find the anchor 
of hope for our souls and the ability to learn contentment. And to add some context to that, Paul, uh, again, he wasn't writing this as like he's on top of the world. This is the best thing ever. Christ has brought and lifted me up. I'm, you know, oh, I'm, you know, skydiving or whatever. He's not doing anything crazy like that. Paul's actually got a lot of hardships going on when he writes this verse. Paul's writing this letter from prison. Uh, there are some commentators who think that when he penned that note, he might have been possible that he was being held with the consideration to be executed soon, which would obviously be very stressful. Uh, we learn elsewhere in scripture that he's recovered from a, from a serious, he's just recovered from a serious illness. So he's been uh, very, very ill for a long time. And of course, the throughout all of Acts, and you can see throughout his letters, he's experienced all kinds of physical persecution. Uh, our text references him being hungry, so there's maybe starvation going on. So Paul has plenty of reasons to grumble and complain, but he doesn't do that. Paul does the opposite. Um, he's in present writing this letter again. He has every every reason to complain. I don't think anyone would feel like um, he's out of place. Um, he doesn't even say, "Hey, pray for me. This is really hard right now. I'm really struggling." He doesn't do that. What he ends up doing is writing one of the most encouraging letters in the New Testament, uh, the, the letter of Philippians. And what we find is that in Christ, we have the strength to be content in all things. I think that's what he's getting at. So in this little bonus episode, uh, that was a little introduction, but this little bonus episode, what I want to really point out is three things. Number one, uh, I want to quickly just review the brief history or briefly the history that God's people have with discontentment because we're very familiar with it. Two, what Christian biblical contentment then looks like. And then three, I've got, I think, five things, kind of practical things that, that you can do or, or work or pray through that uh, that can help help us to become or help you become content people. Um, so again, let me read, read the core verse for this little bonus episode, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, thinking about the history of, of the sin of discontentment among God's people, uh, it's very common. Like if you were to go back through scripture and and look at all the places where God's people have discontent, you would you would struggle to to categorize them all or to, or to, to log them all. There's so many. Uh, as the people of God, uh, we have a long history of grumbling, murmuring, and dissatisfaction in God's providential hand for us. I mean, it's throughout Scripture. the The entire nation of Israel, the Old Testament, is like just a, this repeated session of this. If God blesses His people, they complain. They're disciplined. They repent. God's people are discontent and sin or worship other gods. You just see the cycle kind of over and over. But I did isolate one story in the Bible that I thought may, may be a good example for us to look at. And this will be in Exodus. So in Exodus 14, we read of one of the great stories in the Bible. We read of the crossing of the Red Sea. It's one of the great miracles. Mo Moses uses his staff. He slams it down in the Red Sea. The waters part. And, you know, they go across. The Israelites go across the other side. And then in, in 15, uh, Moses and his people and the, and the people of God are singing praises, are celebrating and worshiping God for delivering them from the hand of their oppressors, the Egyptians. And, uh, and then in chapter 16, so they've been delivered from Egypt. This is what we read. So chapter 16, uh, Exodus 16, one through three. And they set out from Elam and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out to the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now consider the scene here for a moment. These people, the Israelites, just days, weeks earlier, were delivered from the physical abuse of slavery at the hand of the Egyptians. I mean, these are the same people, they watched the 10 plagues of Egypt. They saw a simple wooden staff part the Red Sea. They then walked across the seafloor where these giant walls of water on either side were marvelously, just miraculously held back. They pass through, they get to the other side and they turn around and see their oppressors, their slave masters, the army of the Egyptians be swallowed up by water. And what do they do? Just days later, they start grumbling. They saw that and they didn't trust God. They grumble and complain about their situation. They go as far, I don't know if you caught that when I read that, they go as far as to wish that they were still enslaved in Egypt because of meat pots. Now, God in his kindness, God gives them water, he gives them manna. Uh, but if you continue to read Exodus, if you've read it, you know how this goes. They, they get complaining, they even get tired of manna and complain about that. They still grumbled. All of these blessings, all of these miracles, and they complain. And ultimately, it was this lack of trusting God that caused the Israelites to wander the desert for 40 years. And it's easy to be critical of the Israelites here, you know, some two, uh, how many thousands of years later, right? Um, maybe 4,000 years later. But, but sadly, as Christians, we continue to wrestle with the same thing today. Although grumbling and murmuring towards God doesn't make many lists of sins we often discuss, it really is a serious one. It's a serious, serious sin. And it's serious because at the very heart of it is a general distrust for God's providence and God's promises. When we grumble, our attitude is one of pride. It's a heart that says, God is wrong to do this to me. In fact, if I were God, I would have done things very differently. That is the heart of discontentment, discontentedness. It's a very self-centered, uh, prideful act of rebellion when left unchecked. And, and to, to kind of quantify the seriousness of this sin, I want to look at one other text here. Uh, Jude, verse 14. So the, the, the epistle Jude, this is, what it, this is what it says. We'll read um, 14 through 16. And it was also about, excuse me, it was about also these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And did you notice, I tried to kind of emphasize it there, but did you notice the word ungodly was used four times? Stress, he's, he's, you know, the author here is stressing the ungodliness of their behavior. So how would, how would you know these ungodly? What are they like? Well, we keep reading. He says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. The very first description given about these ungodly in this passage is that they are grumblers and malcontents. This is ungodliness. Grumbling and malcontentedness is equal to ungodliness. And discontentment, if left unchecked, will almost always fester into the sin of grumbling. It's really offensive to God. 
truly offensive to God. He's given us so much. He's given us life and breath, faith, families, food, water, clothes, so on and so forth. And even if you don't have any of those things or few of those things, if you're in Christ, he's given us or given you his son, Jesus. And in that, we are heirs to the very kingdom of God. We've been adopted and elevated to kings and queens in God's kingdom. That's what he's given us. And in his masterpiece on this topic, I think of uh, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by uh, Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. He has this to say. Listen to this closely. He says, Oh, how beneath a Christian is a murmuring spirit, especially when he considers the relations in which he stands. A Christian should consider that murmuring and discontentedness is below the high dignity which God has put upon him. Consider the high dignity which God has put upon you. The meekest Christian in the world is a Lord of heaven and earth. And that's something. In Christ, even if we have nothing else on this earth, we're lords over everything in the universe. That doesn't get talked about enough. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. So, but when we complain, again, to kind of recap, the history, God's, God's people have a long history of this. When we complain and let our hearts fester in discontentment, what we do is we embrace ungodliness. We act unfaithfully. We deny our faith and we deny our, the high dignity of our calling as lords over heaven and earth that we have in Christ. So it's a very serious thing that God's people have wrestled with for a long, long time. But let's kind of, let's kind of look at the more positive side. So what does contentment look like? We, we acknowledge uh, discontentment is bad. Well, what does contentment then look like? Um, Jeremiah Burroughs offers in his book, A Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, highly recommend it. He offers this, this definition. He says, Christian, Christian contentment, excuse me, is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And for those of us in Christ, it means simply that we're able to see things with an eternal biblical perspective. We see the world through the cross of Christ. We see trials and hardships as part of God's providential plan, and we freely submit to his purpose for us, whatever that may be, good or bad. Now, I want to be clear that Christian contentment, to, to kind of dispel maybe a, a myth, uh, Christian contentment is not looking at every situation and pretending it's okay or it's no big deal, right? Ah, this is nothing. The suffering is nothing. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, was it Monty Python, the soldier who has his arms and legs cut off? He says, it's only a flesh wound, right? This guy had no no concept of the seriousness of the situation he was in. Clearly, it was, it was comedy and satire, but, but we see that. Christian contentment isn't like that guy. He doesn't deny the seriousness and the hardship of the situation that he's in. Contentment doesn't wear rose-colored glasses. Rather, Christian contentment is a disposition of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. It, it's, it's a heart that learns to entrust itself to God in whatever circumstance, again, good or bad, you may find yourself in. Christian contentment uh, tells us that we should, and it, it, it drives us to actually the struggling of the trials that we experience. Christian contentment uh, drives us to cry out to God when we hurt. We should weep with those who weep. We live in a fallen world full of heartache, disappointment, hunger, pain, and loss. Everyone knows that. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with being in these situations and then praying and asking God for healing, health, and his providential support. There's nothing wrong with that. Our, our Christian contentment should actually, it acknowledges the hardship of the situation and drives us to Christ 
so that we come to know Christ better. It strengthens our relationship with him. Uh, when we're in the valley of dry bones, as Jeremiah says, we pray for rain because we know that the valleys will fill first. So we don't deny the hardships. We don't look at them with rose-colored glasses. We are keenly aware of how hard and difficult they are. But rather than despair over them or complain or grumble, we let them drive us to Christ. And we have a wonderful example of this in Scripture. I say there's a lot, but there's one wonderful one that I'll point out from, from again, Paul. And this is in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Uh, he writes, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Before I read the rest of this text, I want to point to notice you something there. Paul asked for this thorn to be removed three times. He says he pleads with the Lord. He's pleading. Now, we don't know what the thorn was, but clearly he wasn't comfortable. He didn't want it. Paul wanted it gone, but he was okay if it wasn't. God chose not to heal or remove the thorn from Paul. God could have healed him. He absolutely could have, but he didn't. And, and I often, I'll just add, I, I see some, there's almost some irony here. Like if I were Paul, I can see myself getting even more frustrated than I might have been otherwise. Because on one hand, you have Paul going around, healing the sick, uh, doing, performing all these miracles on people who are, who are sick, dying, you know, all these things. He's been doing all these miracles. And yet we have a case where then he turns around and says, God, remove this, take, heal me, take this thorn from me. God says, no. If it were me, I think I'd be prone or at least can see myself being discontented or bitter, right? But Paul doesn't do that. How does he respond? Paul responds with faith and, ex and exemplifies Christian contentment. Let me keep reading. So again, 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, this is, uh, this is Paul my uh, saying what Christ said to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may not rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we can learn a lot from Paul's example here about Christian contentment. Sometimes hardships stick around and God doesn't take us out of them because he has a purpose for them. When trials come, we don't collapse and give in to them. We may be afflicted, but we're not consumed. We don't murmur. We don't grumble, complain. Christian contentment rather says in, that we look to God's providential hand as a means of sustaining us. We use the suffering again to draw us closer to Christ. That is the disposition of heart that we want or that we, that we aim to learn. Hardships offer to strengthen and shape us into the man or woman that God will ultimately use for his purpose and glory. Okay, so looking then at contentment, how do we learn this? You say, that's great. I want to be more content. How do I learn how to be content? Well, for point number one, I want to encourage you that Paul makes it clear that Christian contentment is learnable. I find this very encouraging. This first time I, this was ever pointed out to me, I was like, oh, that's so encouraging because I just, it felt unattainable for me. Like, oh, I'm such a complainer. I'm just so prone to complain. It just felt like unattainable, right? But we see in 1 Corinthians verse 11 that Paul says, I'm sorry, not 1 Corinthians, Philippians 4.11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So, so if you're sitting there concerned about the discontentment in your heart, the grumbling in your heart, be encouraged. Contentment is not some rare spiritual gift saved for a select, uh, select few super spiritual Christians. 
It's for all Christians, anyone in Christ, and it is absolutely learnable. So be encouraged by that. Number two, uh, if you wish, if we wish to become a content people, uh, we must begin to pay close attention and become intently aware of the grumbling and discontentment in our hearts. So I would encourage you to just pay attention to your words, pay attention to your thoughts. When your sinful heart sprouts up some vain, discontented nonsense, take captive, recognize it, take captive of it, and put it to death. Uh, as a Puritan John Owen famously said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Don't let discontentment take a foothold or fester in your heart because it can and will grow into rebellion. Remember the example we have uh, as the Israelites, right? Repent from your discontentment and see the forgiveness that Jesus is extending to you. Uh, number three, recognize as it relates to possessions and stuff. If you struggle with, oh, I need this thing, I need this thing, recognize that your possessions that you possess your possessions, they don't possess you. What I mean by that is we must learn to bring our desire for stuff to match what we have and not to seek to add to it. Uh, we live in a world that flooded through marketing and social media and influences. All these people who come out and say, oh, you've got to have this thing. You've got to have this thing. And when we don't have this thing, we get discontented. We, we, we operate in such a way, oh, if I only had this, if I only made this much more money, if I had this house, if my, you know, whatever it is, right? We, we, we find our hearts doing that. And we think that we'll attain contentment by adding things to our life. And it's completely the opposite. Learning contentment, we learn it by subtraction and not addition. We learn to be content with what we have and not seeking to add to that. Remember life, the purpose of life is not about getting more stuff. Things will never satisfy you, no matter how much your heart or the culture may try and convince you that it will. So enjoy things, recognize the gifts and the fine things that God has given you, but recognize they're transient, perishable. And if they disappear, break, go away, or stolen, whatever, thank God for the time that you had it and learn to be content with what you have that day. Number four, uh, this is a big one. Aim to see and savor Jesus as the greatest treasure of all. You know, as we all seek to obtain things in life, uh, make him the primary. And if you, if we see and understand the gospel for what it is, we realize that chasing after the riches of this world uh, can be a waste of time. Uh, the richest man in the world, uh, I don't know who it is right now. I think it was Elon Musk maybe a year or two ago. may still be that. I don't know. The richest man in the world is poorer than the lowest, meekest Christian. Someone in Christ is infinitely richer than any man on earth regardless of whatever he's got in the bank. And pray that God would work this perspective in your own heart. If we see Christ above all things, everything else lessens in attraction. And Christian contentment, you know, in that sense, it's really mysterious and it confuses logic because the world looks at that as madness. Christian contentment looks at everything the world can offer and says, no, that's not good enough. Jesus is better. There's nothing in the world that can satisfy me. So whether I have it or not, it matters not. If I have Christ, that's enough. Take my, take my stuff, take my life, whatever, but give me Christ. That is at the heart, the, the, the disposition of heart of Christian contentment. And I, and I think that's what Paul's saying. And, and you know, we've read Philippians 4 a few times. Back in Philippians 3.8, a very famous verse, Paul says this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And for my final point, number five, my, my fifth tip, if you will, about uh, growing and learning Christian contentment, um, I, I wanna encourage you that I think this to be the one of the most effective ways. 
uh, in a very practical sense and how we can learn contentment. And it's simply just to choose to be thankful. Gratitude, when we, when we express thankfulness, gratitude is kryptonite for malcontent. And all of us, regardless of where we're at, have something to be thankful for. Uh, your house, your family, your friends, your food, whatever meal you're eating. And if you have none of those things, you've got Christ. You've got Christ. So whenever you feel that urge of irritability and discontentment spring up inside of you, respond by giving thanks for something. And I think you'd be surprised at how gratitude gradually changes a heart. And I'll add that this is a choice. A lot of times you're like, well, I don't feel thankful. I'm discontent. Giving thanks is a choice, not an emotion. You don't have to feel thankful to give thanks. Even if you don't feel it, do it. Give thanks. Choose to give thanks. Do this. Get in a habit of doing this. And in time, your emotions will follow. You'll see this. We see this regularly in my family. You know, we, I've got five kids and, you know, it's not uncommon for some one of the kids or maybe even me to be in a bad mood. You know, we're arguing. Everyone is, is upset. And, and my wife or I, one of us will catch this and we'll stop and say, hang on, let's slow down. Hey, name three things you're thankful for. And it kind of kills them. Like it kills, it stifles the discontent, like it stifles the bad mood in the room. And then that person, by verbally giving thanks, uh, it, it fixes it. And, and when you do that, when you, when you catch yourself in discontentment and you stop and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give thanks for three things or whatever it is. It could be one thing, whatever. When you start giving thanks, what ultimately you're doing is you're correcting and instructing your heart to learn how to be content. It's one of the most effective ways to learn contentment. Choose to be thankful, even when your emotions are not. And in that thought, uh, as I kind of close here, I thought it'd be fitting to um, reference something else that Paul said in Philippians. So, if, if, if in uh, Philippians, so so if you recall, Paul wrote this letter from prison in the midst of all sorts of stresses, ailments, and hardships. I mean, he's got a lot going on. But listen to how he begins this letter. Again, Paul, if it were me, uh, I just you know I I could see myself writing a letter, say, "Hey, Philippians, pray for me. I got a lot going on. Not even really discontentedness, but just." You know, uh, pray for me. I'm struggling right now. Just this. But Paul doesn't even do that. Listen to how he starts this letter. Again, his life, maybe he's he's facing the, the threat of execution. He's been beaten. He's starving. He's in prison. All these things. And this is what he says. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Paul isn't even, despite what's going on, he's not even concerned. Despite all his agony, he chooses to be thankful. He's thankful for these Christians in Philippi because Paul knows that every individual drop of suffering he's experiencing, for every one of those, for every drop, he has an ocean of joy within his content heart. Thanks so much. This has been Jack with the Chorus and the Chaos.